So again, this panel is evaluating drafting and developing elite athletes. And one of our panelists, the first one I'll introduce as they all find their seats, is Mark Hunter. He is currently the general manager of the London Knights of the OHL, a team that has won two Memorial Cups and four OHL championships since he and his brother Dale bought the team back in 2000. He was recently the assistant GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs before he rejoined the Knights this summer. Mike Liud uh, played 15 years in the National Hockey League. As a former NHL player, he formed Octagon Athlete Representation in 1998, and he serves as Octagon's Managing Director. He is currently a certified NHL player agent. Teresa Raish is the Vice President of Basketball Operations and Player Development for the Toronto Raptors. She's been at MLSE since 2013, previously having worked for Lifetime Fitness and the National Basketball Association. And Dr. Dana Sinclair is a licensed psychologist who consults with surgeons, actors, musicians, executives, as well as professional teams and athletes in the NFL, NHL, NBA, MLB, MLS, and auto sports. She's also worked with a number of Olympic teams, took her to the Olympic Games in Nagano, Sydney, and Salt Lake City. And she's a former international athlete herself. She served as captain of the Canadian field hockey team and played hockey for the University of Cambridge. And it's someone who Brian Burke knows well. I'll still introduce him, even though you all know who he is. He's going to moderate this panel. Former NHL executive holding general manager positions with the Hartford Whalers, the Canucks, Leafs, USA Hockey, and the Ducks, of course, where he won a Stanley Cup in 2007. He most recently held the role of president of hockey operations with the Flames from 2013 to 2018, and now he has joined Sportsnet as a hockey analyst. It's not written in the script, but he loves it. Right, Brian? Yeah, okay. That was convincing. Brian Burke, everybody. So this is a player evaluation and development, and um, I'll start with you, Mark. We'll talk about uh, the NHL scout works 363 days a year for two days in the spotlight, All right? So talk about the traditional pattern of scouting, how you identify players, area scouts, whatever. How has it worked historically? Then we'll talk about how it's evolving. Well, you know what? The first thing uh, for myself over the years, and my experience of what I've had is uh, in this game of hockey. Number one, it has always been, uh, you know, evaluating players, and and uh, you know, the, there's some things we always looked at, or what I looked at, and uh, one of them, of course, is hockey sense. I mean, it's it's one of the to me one of the main things, and uh, it's skating, of course, uh, puck skills, um, and nature upside, uh, and the other one is the last one is character and compete. The character compete brings all the other four together. I mean, if they don't have uh, the desire to get better, um, over the years where uh, uh, my experience of watching players uh, in junior hockey and then of course the National Hockey League, and you know we have examples. I have, I have examples. Guy like Mitch Marner, when we drafted him in in London, he was uh, five, six and a half, and 135 pounds, but he had a big heart, big desire and uh, continue to improve as a hockey player. Um, of course, he has all the skills to go with it. Um, it's something on the side that, that I'm constantly looking for. I mean, it's something it's pretty simple, but the mom was almost six foot and uh, knew he was gonna get some more size and uh, he, he did grow. And at that time, at uh, the age of uh, 17, he ended up being almost 5'10", 5'11". Now he's about a 5'11", 170 pounds, but uh, 
it's it's something in the genes. But he was a guy that just never kept getting better. And we see in the Toronto Maple Police right now that uh, his push and his drive, and there's still more gas in him for him to get better right now. Okay, so it's the old scout with a cigar at the rink, watching with a clipboard, writing down notes, and now it's evolved a little bit. And how have we evolved in scouting as far as where we've gone with analytics? Well, you know what? Um, uh, you know what? I, I think some of the, the older gentlemen in the business, and, you know, I worked for Lou for uh, three years, and, you know, everybody's, you know, pushed where Lou wasn't in the analytics. He was in more in the analytics when people give him credit for. Um, he uh, he analyzed and looked at everything. Um, he, you know, of age and and uh, sample size and and uh, difficulty of the leagues. You know, I know the younger guys in the analytics. Well, Lou was on top of that. I mean, that's why he was successful in what he was doing because of how he looked at everything. And I, I don't think some of the older guys get credit uh, uh, for doing that. And I see some guys, you know, some people bring it out to the forefront where Lou is a very quiet guy. He wouldn't, he wouldn't bring not too many secrets out there. He keeps his things pretty close where I, I think that's from the old to the young, which you just talked about, Berkey. Uh, I think it's, uh, I, I, th I think sometimes in, in the business, it's, uh, I think you keep things closer to what you're doing. You don't have to tell everybody how smart you are. And I think a lot of young guys in this business want to show how smart they are instead of just showing on what you got in product you got on the ice. And uh, that's what I see. Okay, so Teresa, I said famously at the MIT Sports Conference about 10 years ago that <clears throat> analytics were like a lamppost to a drunk. <laughs> Useful for support, but not necessarily for illumination. Tell us how this, uh, the uh, the business has evolved. So I've been with the Raptors now for, this is my sixth season. And for me, I was, uh, my background, I, I grew up a volleyball player. I, I worked at Disney World and then I worked at the league office and operations for six years before joining Lifetime Fitness. So like complete change, so recreation. So that gave me a great breath, breath of knowledge, but what I'd never done is work for a team before. So coming into the Raptors, I was a clean slate. And um, Mark, you're just talking about, you know, the guys who have been around a long time, um, They've been doing it a long time and there's a lot of wisdom and knowledge that comes from that. So for me, coming into the Raptors is really trying to figure out the balance of, okay, what, what ideas do I have and things I've seen that aren't at sports or at the team level that make sense? And then ultimately, how do I affect change? And I think analytics is a big piece of that. Um, we have a great group at, at the Raptors. They do a great job and they've even evolved a lot over the, the six years I've been there, but I think the the thing that's really striking to me is what they're able to do to provide a baseline. Um, it's something that you can't evaluate things if you don't have anything to evaluate them against. So you can go and say, oh, we had a great practice today, but what are you comparing it to? And I think that's what we've really um, focused on is providing and figuring out what that baseline is, whether it's analytics, if it's development on the court, if it's physical fitness, it's a whole myriad of different things. And that's really, really helped us to measure um, progress, and that's also really helped us set goals. And I think that's really shown, I mean, starting to show the fruits of our labor now. You know, it's six years ago, you know, 
drafting these guys, it's a draft of potential. Oh my gosh, talking about hockey, the guys that you guys are drafting are so young and you have to kind of take a flyer on them. And the same thing happens in basketball. It's only two, um, two rounds long, so you only get a couple tries and, and those picks are becoming more and more valuable as the rookie scale contracts become more and more a great deal as the, as the money keeps coming in for, for basketball and the salary and contracts. So I think um, what you're talking about with support um, versus ruling out is I want to take it even a step farther is what the numbers and what setting the baseline does it really helps us track and evaluate and honestly it motivates if you can say you improved this much over the last year that's going to motivate you to keep doing those things that are helping you to continue to get better um, because honestly especially um, you know I know the NBA that's what I work closest with it is getting harder and harder to make your team better Trades are getting harder and harder to do. It's getting harder and harder to sign free agents that you don't already have on your team, so you have to draft well. And you have to invest in the players that you have. And you have to get their fullest potential. And I think really working with our data group as well as our player development group to really set a baseline and, and show progress has really helped us. Excellent. So Dana, uh, make full disclosure, Dana worked for me for 12, 15 years anyway. At least. And so our, our uh, template in evaluating players was number one was eyeballs. We go and watch them play. It's a novel concept for the pure analytics people, but we actually watch the athletes compete, including the warm-up. That's why we don't do it by video, including body English on the bench and everything when a player gets yelled at. Number two was our background checks and our interview with the player. So Dana would interview the player. We would find out everything we could about this kid. In the first three rounds, we knew everything. We knew what he ate for lunch what his parents did, what his siblings did, what his cousins did, the whole thing. And third was analytics. And we'd say, all right, this is what we think we're getting. What can we compare it to? So Dana, talk about the, the makeup. Baseball uses the term makeup, a player's makeup, his character. How do you assess that? Right, well, I'll, I'll tell you what it is that I do first. It's sort of the behavioral analytics side of the, of the selection equation. So I assess and interview prospects, and I'm looking for things like how competitive are they? Um, are they self-motivated? Are they impulsive? Are they going to be consistent? Can they stay focused, especially under pressure? Uh, all of these types of things, are they, are they too perfectionistic? Are they too self-critical? So once we've had a look at those things, I mean, I think it's very important to know those things clearly because it's helping to quantify the risk of each individual athlete. And I do think that that process has to be done properly. You can't um, back yourself up on just using computer-generated assessments. You have to actually speak with the individual and try to challenge them and push them to find out what really their profile is like. Because I do feel that we tend to forget um, that talent is, while it's key, of course, it's driven by personality factors and behavioral qualities. Excellent. Mike, on the, on the player representation side, you're a star goaltender in the National Hockey League. Now you represent players. What what is that analytics affected how you guys do your jobs? Well, we're tapping into everything that people, the panel has talked about, right? I mean, uh, what has changed in our game is when I recruited Ryan Miller, he was 21. Now we're recruiting 15-year-olds and some people younger, right? So the younger you go, the more impossible it is. The entry draft when I uh, uh, was in college was age 20. Now it's at 18. So it, 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 it is a guess. But from an analytical standpoint, um, 
what Dana is talking about is key, and it, and it goes with Mark's hockey sense, the ability to analyze the game at speed, and the ability, you know, to to compete. And that is an ability; it's a skill. So, you know, as a former player, I'm looking for the same things, right? When I go to a game, particularly with goaltending, which I think it's it's very evident, is they have to be able to track the puck, focus. They have to be able to move the skills of skating or balance on your on, on your uh, skates, and and they have to compete. And the compete is not when they win two nothing. The compete is when it's five five, and they make three saves in the last ten minutes of the game. That's an analytical stat that nobody's looking at, and I know for a fact it's critical. So you know, we have. Um, so I, I have. I think I have an advantage because I study the game and played it and lived it for a long time but um, you know th those are you, you know when they're this young 15 16 you know it's a guess it's just a guess and the other component to to the is the development I think that the uh, it's it's one thing to recruit a kid uh, a player uh, it's another thing to you know or draft them uh, but then you know we have we find that we have to build the not the skill but the understanding, the hockey sense back into them because that's being stripped away from the coaching. Everybody is going to look at a successful NHL coach and the word system has leaked right into peewee hockey. And a system is mutually exclusive to development, right? We used to call it a game of mistakes. Go make mistakes, learn. And now it's a game of don't you dare make a mistake. And that just suffocates players. So. You know, and then back to Dana's point. You know, you're, you're, you know, are, is that crippling to them? You know, do they are they beaten by it? And um, and as they evolve, my favorite topic is because I just learned this. I think the male brain forms at 25 fully, right, or something of that nature. Sounds fine. So yeah. So I mean, you're talking about these kids are going to go through an evolution of emotional change and intellectual change. Um, and I, I, sometimes you just throw your hands up and say it's just a guess. Well, we do have now, we are producing the best drill executing players in the history of the world. Without, they can go without, through without cones. question. They can go through cones better than anyone in the, back in the day. We've lost some of the hockey sense. And my feeling is that's because there's no unstructured hockey anymore. No one plays that's outside. Right. You know. without, without question. I, I think, I think the, the kids don't play uh, on the ponds anymore because climate doesn't allow it. And I've said this for years, that below 14, they should have one day a week because the kids are playing five or six days a week, which is crazy, too long. And they should have one day where there are no coaches. Just replicate the pond. And yeah, I was so just going to add in there, sorry. I was going to say 18 by 18, they're pretty much set. You can, you can go with the profiling yeah, at 18. Yeah. What about some of us who never grow up? Well, do that's them? a problem. Yeah. So this, this <laughs> issue, this hockey specific, <laughs> There is no unstructured hockey for these young players anymore, hardly any. They don't play outside. They don't, the, the coaches overcoach. There's too many uh, games and not enough practices. So that's what I'm talking about with Mike is, we learned hockey growing up. It wasn't five on five and it wasn't shirts and skins because it was minus 15. It was Gray Parker, green sweatshirt, red hoodie, and then against the other guys and it was eight on eight. So you learn quickly to move the puck. You learn to find people. Uh, very, it's absent from what our kids do now. When I was in Anaheim, we skated on the Rideau Canal and we had two guys on our team who had never played outside before. Imagine that, NHL players had never played outside before. So Danny, you wanted, or uh, Teresa, you wanted to talk about development too. The develop, use of analytics or the critical play, because we can draft all we want, but if we can't turn them into players, we're not really getting our job done. 
Yeah, I think, well, you hit on it a little bit. Um, once you get a player, that's when your job starts. Um, really focusing on, and, and the, the thing that we've really tried to do is, um, when we talk about player development, it's all encompassing. A lot of times, um, there'll be two people on a team that have the same title. It'll be player development, and one will be the drill guy, working out with the guys on the court after team practice has been done. And the other one is gonna be the one who's taking them to, to become a professional, showing them how to eat right and showing them how to sleep right. And we said, why do two people in our organization have the same title? Well, it's because those things are, they need to be done together. So I think taking a holistic approach, um, looking at how we're growing our players, not just on the basketball court in a silo and not just off the court in a silo, but how they complement each other and how they have to develop together. And that's what we really invested in. And it's interesting you say that about um, unstructured play. And I think basketball has fallen, kind of fallen to the same place. You get these people who, growing up, all they're doing is playing games, playing games, playing games, and they aren't developing the foundational skills. And I know you, you know you mentioned you know we have a lot of guys who can go through cones and ultimately in the NBA like if you're not working on your shooting you're never going to see a court and unfortunately some of these guys all they do is play games so we almost had to go the other way and we have to go back and make sure that sometimes when we when we get players we have to go back to the very very basics and make sure they have the foundation before we really get out there so it's just doubling down on those things, developing them as a player, and then also understanding what their role is on the team and making sure they're developing those skills that are gonna get them on the court. Because ultimately, that's what every player wants to do, is they want to play minutes. Um, the other thing that's really helped us is the NBA and, and honestly, MLSC's investment in our minor league sports teams. So, um, Raptors 905, this is the fourth season, and I think it's paid huge dividends for us. Almost every single player last year, our um, bench mob, as they became officially known as, had all logged time in that league, and I think that was why it was so impactful and so important and why we were able to really see the, the impact they were able to have on the big team is because they are able to grow and develop in that very safe structure, in that very structured structure, um, very structured structure? Very structured um, organization that's directly tied to, to the Raptors so they could take those things that they're learning, those foundational things, and apply them before and see how they perform before they go and impact the big team. And Mark, last year your your Marlies won the AHL Calder Cup championship. What was that and from a development standpoint? What do you think that's worth to a player? Well, I think it's, uh, I mean, as much as drafting is, is really important, but the development is, is, a, is a process of uh, taking time to get good people to spend time with these individual players and you know, I think with uh, the Marlies and, and just using them as example, how they won, and uh, I think a guy like Richard Clune, uh, um, as much as the coaches, we get away from the players within the team, um, helping out the younger guys. And um, it, younger kids seem to listen even better when a player that's been through it and is still playing, and, and uh, they can seem to push them along of, you know, believing in what uh, uh, the Leafs organization is doing from the from lifting weights, uh, uh, power skating, um, shooting skills. So I, I think that really helps out. And I just it's just past experiences too with when I played for the Montreal Canadiens, the Canadian success was because of of uh, the players they had there too, where they knew the Canadian way, where. And I think you need that in any organization. Like the Leafs, they, they, they're starting to get that where they know that uh, these players or the players, young players, have 
what they expect from the, the lease, what they expect for for them to get better. And and a guy like Doug Rasborough, Bob Ganey, Larry Robson, they showed the way to the young guys. And and I think it was important from uh, from the Marleys where they had a group of older guys there that showed the right way to do things and how to act as a person and how to train. And uh, you need that, and you need that for them to get better. Mike, from your perspective, do you think the NHL does a good job developing players? Or does it vary team to team? It, it varies team to team for sure. It, they could do a better job. I think that the American League still is, uh, you know, put them in the cauldron and see who bubbles to the top. Mm. And um, I, I think that they need to uh, spend more time uh, working on the development of, of each individual and how they play and approach the game. Um, they have a, a difficult job as we do because we're getting players that are coming in with a completely different mindset than when Mark and I played. And um, there's a lot of entitlement in the world today and, and that's uh, creeped into uh, to hockey as one should expect. And they, they don't stop to think that you know, the National Hockey League is a very limited universe of people. And when you talk to a kid, a young player, you know, you might say, I've said this many times, you know, there's, uh, you're a skilled centerman. You ever play the wing? No, I'm a centerman. Okay. Um, you know, how many centermen are there in the league, right? And uh, easier when there was 30 teams times four, you know, 120. No, there's only 60, right? And they don't stop to think that there's 60 or 62 um, skilled and 62 not so skilled and they play different roles. And all the not so skilled centermen in the NHL were all skilled when they played junior in college. And, and they have to adjust. So it, it's, it's that adjustment to pro hockey that, that we struggle with. Well, at one point we were all skilled, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Might have been peewee. Yeah, but, yeah, but when, you, when you put them into the whirlpool, yeah. right, you find out how skilled or unskilled you actually are. And that's why I say the least skilled guy in the NHL is one fine hockey player. Yeah, exactly. Dana, what do you think about that on the development side? Well, I think that individual development is critical. And I think you're right. Most teams don't do as good a job of it as they could because if an individual player cannot control his emotions under pressure, he's not going to get the most out of himself and there goes the results and the money and the career. So individually, I think that they need to really learn what derails them on the ice and off the ice. and go through a particular process that's quick and easy to learn and pre-plan what they need to do and what they need to change. And it's not as hard as people think, but people tend to ignore this on teams. Yeah, and to Mike's point, like my teams, we always put up a grid and we had job descriptions in each grid. So there were 12 forwards, six defensemen, two goaltenders, job description. And we drafted for a job description. You had to draft a guy and say he's gonna fit in this box. So it might be a third line left wing, has to check, has to fight once in a while, has to be able to kill penalties. And so when that player gets hurt, we don't call up the best player from the American League team, we call up the player from that box. So you draft with an eye on a certain box on the team. Um, go back to the draft when you took, you mentioned him before, Mitch Marner. I was at that draft, I thought you were gonna take Noah Hannafin, big skilled defenseman. I thought you made a huge mistake taking this tiny kid, but it's worked out pretty well. Yeah, it has. I mean, um, I mean, I think I ins inside information where I was in London, so I, <laughs> so I ended up drafting him in the OHL and uh, and knew his makeup and knew his desire. 
and that's where I think what you just said earlier on about you know the gathering all the information uh, the scouts have to do and making sure what you're getting to it, they have to improve and they have to keep getting better and they have to want to win and you know Mitch has some attributes that it's important to any hockey club and and we end up winning a Memorial Cup in uh, London. I, I just think he'll he'll keep pushing here to win a Stanley Cup because that's what he's all about. And I, just to get back to, that's what you need when your your, your scouts need to find that inner desire. Uh, and I, I just, you know what? It's just really from my instincts um, and watching them. And uh, I just knew he's going to just blossom. Mike, who's the most competitive guy you ever played with? <laughs> Gotta say my brother, right? Brian said. Well, you know, he was, you know, certainly when he in Philadelphia when he, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was. Uh, competitive, you know, Brian certainly, you know, he, I mean, he's right there. Kevin Deneen, very competitive. And, you know, the guy that, you know, just to put it full, the, 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 the most competitive guy that I played against, Wayne Gretzky, right? I mean, I'd made a, you know, there was this one moment where I, I made a stop, it was a great stop. Right, it was against Wayne. It was on the cover of the journal the next day in Edmonton. After that, Puck went over the glass. He came right back, came around. He tapped me on the pad, said, great stop. Went right to the face-off before we changed, right? And put his stick down, let's go again. Like, you got that one. Let's see if you get this one, right? Very subtly, you know, there's not a lot of physical part to his game, obviously. He's too busy scoring. But he was, he was supremely driven. Dana, who's the most competitive guy you drafted? Ooh, I'm thinking I'm going outside of hockey. Uh, Russell Wilson. Seattle Seahawks. Yep. Mm -hmm. Teresa, how about you? Well, I mean, I think I haven't drafted. I haven't drafted this but guy, that, but that Michael. I mean, when you were talking about that, I was just thinking about uh, Michael Jordan, how he has a reputation of being the most competitive guy, and how he was able to channel that to become the greatest. You know, I think anytime you see a player, because they're all competitive. They don't make it this far if they're not competitive, but those that really get to the elite level are able to channel that competitiveness, similar to what Dana kind of was mentioning, channel that competitiveness for good and to help them help them get to the top. Okay, so we're gonna open this up for questions in just a couple, how's our time, Trev? Okay, so we'll open up for questions in five minutes. Um, going back to uh, when they, they changed the rules, Mike, you said drafting 20-year-olds, how much easier would that be than drafting 18-year-olds? Immeasurably. You know, you just have, a, you have more of a, you have more time to analyze them, right? There, so there's, there's more of a book on the player, and uh, you have more time to, to watch them go through the process of, of being a young player, say in the CHL, having success. What does he do after that, right? From 19 and 20, does he keep going? And, um, and, and you just, uh, you, know, you know, I'll go back to Wayne. Like every time I played against Gretz and we played together against each other for 14 years, it, it was, there was many times something new in his game that I hadn't seen before, just something little, right? So it doesn't happen by accident. And so if you have a, a four or five year period to watch somebody, you're, you're going to see that. And you're, you're feeling on the draft age in the NBA, Teresa? It's one and done mostly, right? Well, it's actually changing. So they're talking about going back now to um, making, making it eligible. It's you know working with the NCAA and their rules of, of what's possible. Um, so it's looking like we're actually going to be able to draft guys that are younger again, which opens up a huge 
huge can of worms, but I think the one thing that you always are looking for is that one MBA skill. And a lot of times that skill reveals itself pretty early. It's just all those other things that, um, the, all the intangibles um, that come, come along with it. And those are the things that we've been really successful at finding. You know, I think Fred Van Fleet is a great story. He played four years um, undergrad at Wichita State. He led that team. They, they always won. He was always a winner. But you look at him, you look at him play, and you're just kind of like, what, where does he fit? Where does he fit on an NBA team? He's kind of positionless. Well, not positionless. He, he's obviously a point guard. But how does he fit? How does he make an impact? And he has proved himself time and time again to be an invaluable part of our organization. You mentioned, so Teresa mentioned one skill. Uh, on my teams, I'm sure it's the same with yours, Mark. Even in the last round, even in the seventh round, the player has to project one NHL skill. If he doesn't, you're just guessing. It might be a shot, it might be his motor, it might be his hockey sense. But if he doesn't have one NHL skill that projects, he's never going to play. You guys do it the same way? I agree with you, Brian. I mean, it's. I mean, especially in the later rounds. I mean, the early rounds, you want more than just one sk good yeah. skill. I mean, uh, but in the later rounds, you're hoping projection is a fast skater or uh, he's, his hockey sense is real good. Um, you know, one thing, you know, as, as being involved in hockey, we all believe we can get their skating better as long as they've got, a, got an engine there, they want to get better. And uh, it's hard to improve the hockey sense, but uh, the skating can be improved, um, you know, strength. And if you get strength, the skating will get better. So. Yes, I really agree. The one thing that uh, is very important is you push one thing that does really well, and it usually, hopefully, you, you blossom the other parts of his game. Okay, perfect. All right, any questions from the group here? I guess the other thing I'm just going to add real quick is on draft night, um, the other thing that we're really looking at when we're evaluating players is how they've gotten better. kind of goes back to the baseline. So the first time we see a guy, it's like, okay, this is where he's at. This is the one skill we think he might have. This is where he needs to improve. And then tracking that over time. So even if a guy hasn't, isn't quite there, if we've seen improvement, and obviously the intel, talking to coaches, things like that, you get a little bit of that, and that he's improved, and this is the area, and this is how he works. Like, we're going to draft that guy. Because yeah, that, so, sometimes that, that though invested. you got to be you got to be careful of that though because I've seen in years past. Um, I mean, I know everybody in London. Sometimes we hide guys there, and we have million scouts there. They get all worked up because we have fourth line players there, but they're not really fourth line players. The year we went to the Memorial Cup, we had our fourth line was Bo Horvat, Chris Turney, Josh Anderson, and all three are playing in the National Hockey League. Um, made a good team. They were young kids. Got hidden down the lineup should have played more. And the scouts come back, wow, Josh Anderson, you, you didn't play much. Well, at the time I had some other players better. So you have to be careful of watching players from the scouting standpoint, where they get hidden down the lineup because they're a good team. We, we had a good team, we were winning. We had, we had Austin Watson, we had Vladi Neskakov, and I could go on with some good players. And, and they got hidden down there and they found the draft because of it. And they end up being good players. Where, uh, Tim Burke from San Jose ended up drafting Chris Turney in the second round. And everybody said, wow, that's the worst pick ever. Playing the fourth line for the London Knights. Why would they draft in the second round? Well, he was right. Well, Tim Burke, he, was, he had a gut feeling. He's seen him, watched him, and seen that he was hidden down the lineup. And now he's a NHL player who's going to play eight, 900 games and, and uh, a quality player in the National Hockey League. And a guy that doesn't fit one box fits like six boxes. He's and a he Swiss was, Army knife. And he was hidden down the lineup yeah. where it took good scouting and where you're watching him and keying in on a guy where you're going, why, why is he down the lineup? You're holding him back. 
Maybe I was. That's what we say. <laughs> we, we, we call up Mark and go, you're holding my guy back. That's what the agents said. I, I had Joe Resnick call me all the time. Why are you not playing this guy more? Well, you had a good team. And it takes the pecking order of a good team. You had your first and your second, your third line. And I, that's why I give Chris Turney and the dad and maybe not Joe. Joe was going crazy <laughs> on me. But with the rest, with the dad and, uh, and the, the young man, they accepted the role. And you know what? Next year he played a lot for us, took off. And a, a great pick by the San Jose and Tim Burke, of course, who stood up and made a tough decision at the time. That was my theory on why I didn't play more. I thought they were just holding me Hold back. Me. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but it shouldn't be lost, the, the Mark's comment about the, the parents, right? Like, well, that was well, going to be my next question. We didn't have one from the crowd. We'll hold up one sec. Parents. Well, in that case, what, what, what is happening with that player is that he's learning from those older players, the better players. He's chasing them that are on that team, right? When you play on a good team, you're learning the intangibles, how to compete, how to challenge yourself, fight for your ice, right? That it's just, these are, these are for sure, I don't know the young player, but for sure, though, that experience in London carried forward to the NHL and allowed him to move through the, I assume he started in the American League and, and to play. There's, there's no accident with that. And you know what, it's funny, we've had years past and because um, I used to argue with our, the analytic boys there from the Leafs because I go, Robbie Thomas. He was a young man that played for London at 16. They go, well, why need to play him? I says, well, he's 16. We're breaking him in slowly. We won a Memorial Cup in 216. And he was a, not a fringe player, but just spare, we're breaking a spare, spare player. player. And he accepted it. And you know what? He had character to fight through it because when you get to the National Hockey League, it's not all sunshine. There's going to be bumps in the roads where you got a guy like tough guy like Berkey here is going to say you're not playing tonight or you're getting sent down and how you adapt to it. If you just sit there and cry like a little baby or you sit up and go, I'm going to battle through this. Where Chris Turney's, the Robbie Thomas, they battled. And that's what that's why they're going to be NHL players. They just they're not going to accept being down. They're going to keep going. Parents can be a great asset, can be a great liability. What's your view on their role? Oh, the parents are so important. I mean, those are the people that give these guys the foundation. Um, when we were doing intel reports, the parents are like the most important people that we're trying to learn about, learn about who they are, what their background is, how they've impacted their kids. And I mean, looking at our roster, all their parents have been very involved in their lives and have been a huge, huge influx. And I, th I think what Mike was saying about um, teammates is also really important. Um, and you made a comment about um, sending them down. And I think that's the one thing as an organization we've really tried to um, focus on. When you're getting sent quote unquote down, it's actually investing, the team is investing in you. We're investing in you to get better. And I think the biggest thing is you don't get buy-in right away from that, but when you can point to stories where you can say, um, Pascal um, Siakam and Fred Van Fleet played almost exclusively, I shouldn't say exclusively, sometimes there's injuries, but in the G League, their, their first couple of years, they won a championship there. Now they're huge role, mem role players for our team. They're, one of, they're, they're a reason why we we're, we're have the deepest bench. And now guys who see the opportunity to go to the G League want to do it. They're asking us to play there because they see how that can impact them, their skill development, and their ability to impact the big team. So I think sending down and like proving yourself is we've taken it even one step farther. They're asking us to play there. They're, they're wanting to play there because they see how that can um, really 
pay dividends and be able to impact their career. And you know, we just signed Fred to a free agent contract. That's when you get the money. So um, I think that's also another thing. And, and when, when I relate that to parents, a lot of times the older, older players, the players who have gone through it, are serving as those guidance of like, do it. This is going to help you. I did it. This is what happened to me. Dana? You know, I don't worry about parents at all. I think by the time they get to me at a draft, they're, they're 18. It's all about them. Their behavioral profile is set. Uh, they're, you know, they can always improve for sure, and that's part of what development is. But I've seen so many sort of good parents who cannot deal with their kid and vice versa. Um, that really doesn't have an impact on, on my area at all. I can tell you from experience, parents can be a major, major hindrance to a player. Can be a major, Absolutely. major hindrance to a player's evolution. I, and I'm not going to yeah. name the players because it's not their fault. But I've had players where the parents were involved, and not with me, because I'd say to them, look, this is the first and last time we're going to talk. Like, he's ours now. You got him here, thank you. He's ours now. But I've had to have that conversation probably a half dozen times with parents. I want to talk to you about my son's ice time. We're going to talk today, and then we're never going to talk again, <laughs> except when I walk by you in the dressing room, outside the dressing room. So um, it's some part of the research we do on players is, is the parent a problem? The parents are a problem. It's going to be a problem for us. And, and the last thing, too, a lot of teams, we always had a do not draft list. Do you guys have a do not draft yes, list? Yes, we did. So we had kids that were, the psychological profile on them was so poor, we wouldn't draft them even in a late round. Okay? And I went to training camp with the Indianapolis Colts. They did the same thing. They had a do not draft list. Where this kid's a big enough problem, we're not going to touch him in the seventh round. We're not going to invite him to camp. We want nothing to do with him. And that you guys all are the same, Mike? Yeah, you know what? The problem with that, Brian, is if you do draft them, it takes so much time from the development part, department working with them that it takes away from all the other boys. It's really not fair. So it's just almost too much work to get to the end result of being a team player and actually you can win with. And you might not even get there because there is a category yes. of players that will not change. You cannot help them. You cannot develop them. It's not going to work. They might have you know, snippets of good behavior, but they will go back to their default and they will cost you money and, and trouble. And, and you know what I find in the coach's room, and Brian, you can attest to this too, is when the coaches are constantly talking about one player, it's distraction to the whole team of getting better. And uh, we've had it in London and we just move on. In the old days, they would send a player down by putting a safety pin with a train ticket on his pants while he was out of practice. <laughs> so he'd come off the ice and there would be a train ticket, safety pin to his pants, sending him to the minors. We're a little more civilized now. Question, please. Uh, for Dr. Sinclair, uh, would you mind sharing some of the frameworks you have in terms of your evaluation, like with uh, Dr. Duckworth uh, in terms of grit or Dr. Nadir with your taste, some oh. of those frameworks that you find really sure. successful? Well, I think you can use a number of frameworks, um, but really the key is to be able to interview them after. You, you cannot rely on something that's computer generated, something like the grit profile, um, while fun and sort of a nice sort of party trick. Um, it's, it's all self-report. It's just a few questions. It, it's not going to tell you, uh, certainly in a professional setting, what you're getting in terms of that individual. So I think, really, it's the interview process that's, that's critical, and finding someone who can do that well is, is important. Thank you. We have another question there. Hi there, guys. My name is Cooper. I'm in my third year at Brock University. Uh, this is for Teresa, but really everybody up at the panel. 
Um, what is the biggest driver in a player having success early in their career, but then slowing down in year two, three, four, et cetera? I'm thinking guys like Dak Prescott or Norman Powell, for example. Um, other than beginner's luck, what are these factors and how can they capture that play back and put it back in their games? That's a great question. You see it a lot. Um, what is it, the sophomore slump, right? Um, it can be a variety of things, honestly. Um, the things I've seen, when you're a rookie, nobody's seen you before. You'll even see it sometimes rookies, um, especially if they're very, very talented, they'll be able to go out, really make an impact, and you'll even see, like, after the All-Star, it already kind of starting. So other, or the second time you start playing teams. So, you know, this, this team, I mean, sorry, this league, um, they're smart. They do a lot of research. You know, they, they go up against the guy one time, they're going to remember him the next time. So, so that's one. Um, the other thing is just figuring out, um, figuring out the league trying to figure out how to be a professional. Um, the, the jump from, you know, most of these guys are coming from the NCAA or even European basketball, the jump from playing, you know, at most probably 35 to 40 games to playing 82 is huge. Um, these young kids also are not, I mean, they're 20 years old. How much did you think about how much you slept in eight at 20 years old, you don't think about that and the impacts that it has on your on your body. So I think there's also, and that all goes along with professionalism. So I think figuring that out um, is also tricky. And then also the makeup of the team. Um, trying to figure out your role, what value you can add, um, also also plays a role. And you know I think Dana can probably talk more, more than I can, but just there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of um, conflict. There's there's a lot of things that these guys have never dealt with that are coming at them at a much higher and intense level. So to figure out how to, con control is not probably the right word, but how to manage deal it. with and manage it, it it's, it takes a while and you'll see some guys kind of, you know, have that adrenaline rush and that will, they'll get them through, but then when they have to perf really perform at a consistent basis. And it, it's a big thing that goes into how you put your team together. Your senior leadership group is a big part of that. You can't count on the coaches to do it all. You have to have people in the room that will shape these guys, even to the point where where they sit. Which player sits beside each player? The coaches spend time on that. It's no accident. Usually they have defensemen together, but they'll put Mark Giordano in Calgary, who's the best leader on the team, they'll put him next to a rookie rather than next to a veteran. Okay. I mean, the other thing is a lot of these young guys, they'll, um, they'll never been exposed to the way that an NBA team does player development. So if things get tough, they'll, they'll go back and they'll retract to the drills, the things they did growing up that got them to where they were. And honestly, a lot of those are not what's gonna get them to the next level. So they're, they're working really, really hard, but they're not working really, really smart, and sometimes it'll set them back. All right. Thank you. Hi guys, fantastic panel, learned a lot. Um, I won't be drafting anytime soon, that's for sure. Um, my name is Adil, I manage the NHL app within Canada, and the question I wanted to ask you was, what are some of your biggest draft regrets, positive, negative? Um, we don't have enough time. <laughs> and draft and what was regrets, the that Jesus Christ, I'd be here all day. <laughs> you know, I went four years in Vancouver and didn't draft, didn't, in one draft, didn't draft one player that played in the NHL. Four drafts in a row. We changed some of the scouts after that. <laughs> My question though was, what's sort of the biggest lesson that came out of that where you said, how did I miss that? that? That makes a lot of sense. What was that insight, that lesson from that regret? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll let you guys go first. Hans, you go. Well, you know what, you're always analyzing. If, if, if you're not uh, looking back at drafts 
and analyzing where you made the mistakes, you're not getting better. And I, I think it's very important where I think anybody in, in uh, the hockey world have a hard time going, wow, oh, geez, I really screwed that up and I made a mistake. Because you are going to make mistakes in the draft. The percentage of the kids that are, are playing from them drafts, it's going to happen. I mean, you know, we can sit there and look at Aho or Dermont. Dermont went, we went one pick ahead of Aho. Aho's a good player. We could sit there and analyze. Now, the way we're thinking, we had Marner and, uh, you know what, did we need another Aho? But we didn't draft Aho. So you can sit there and look back at drafts and say, where did I screw up? But I think one of the problems in a lot of teams, my personal opinion, is people take it too personal and sit there and analyze, well, where, where did I go wrong? Like, you can draft safe, too. There are teams that draft safe and take players that they know are going to play but maybe not be any good, and I just refuse to live that way. Like, that's just limited potential. And that's where I you're think... You're not going to hit... You're not, yeah. Unless you strike out once in a while, you'll never hit home runs, so... And that's where I think, you know, Shanny from the top of uh, the grid, he has been very good from the start. He wants to, to, to go for it. He wants not just to be... Well, maybe he's just going to be a fourth-line player or a fifth, sixth defenseman. He never... If we talked that way, my scouts, he, the hammer would come down. He didn't like it. And you know, interestingly today too, agents are more and more uh, hiring psychologists or helping their their players get through interviews, mm -hmm. teaching them how to do it. How to? I was on a plane once on the way to the NFL Combine, and there was an agent sitting there, basically teaching his guys how to do the written tests. So that changes things a little bit too. Yeah, we when, when we talked to players at the NBA Combine um, five years, the you know, first year, it was rare that anybody ever worked with a sports psychologist. Oh, right. Now, if they haven't, it's you're there in the minority. But I'm talking about specifically to get through the interview process, not oh, sort of okay, performance on the, on the court. So it's a different thing. Different thing, yeah. 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 And with that, talk to the kids about I mean that that is a big part of it it right down to a scripted answer and yeah. and the mm. and the scouts all I've laugh at it. it I mean you read <laughs> through it what uh, what we would encourage player to do is to, is to be to talk passionately about the game it's a job interview you know tell them how you want you're how not you tell me they're not schooled stop it you not age, our school. Guys. No, you age no, of school yeah, not your guys. stop it there yes you're no. not no don't what? tell them. I'm Some telling are pretty you, good too. Draft one of our players and you'll know. I, 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 I will tell you. I stopped interviewing players at the combine because they're so well coached. I had to and I try to screw them up. Know. I'd say, What kind of a dog do you have? And the kid's like, Well, Jesus, that wasn't on the list my agent gave me. <laughs> so he's thinking, Well, I, gotta, I don't want to have a, a wimpy dog. Uh, maybe I should say a, a, a Rottweiler. And this kid's totally screwed up. Now I got him where I want him. Now I start asking him questions. I ask him what kind of watch is it? What watch are you wearing? He's like, well, if I say an expensive one, he's going to think I'm entitled. If he say it's a Timex, he's going to think I'm cheap. Now I got him off the script. Okay, talk about hockey. So, I stopped interviewing kids at the combine because of what you guys do. Question? <laughs> Not us. Hey, that's a broad brush. You can't do that. We got one time for one more. Hi, uh, Phil Mizoki, Durham College Sport Business Graduate Student. Um, Society and sport culture are constantly changing, and 18-year-olds today are much different than the ones maybe even five years ago. Um, what kind of initiatives are you taking to stay on top of changing player mentality and skill sets as they come up? 
I'm well, not sure that, I, I think that there's more pressure in the world. I think that uh, they're exposed to a lot of um, uh, outside stimuli that, that uh, influences their personality. But, um, uh, you know, the players that are going to be successful are zeroed in on what they're doing. They're playing hockey. If they're, if they're distracted, uh, yeah, certainly, um, you know, playing uh, video games, you know, they can get trapped into, you know, playing them till two o'clock in the morning, but that's no different than watching TV till two o'clock in the morning. So if they're playing junior, right, and they're not going to school, then they have no reason to get out of bed in the morning. That's also a, a, a problem. So I think that you try to encourage them to have a full life, to have other interests, um, to stay focused in playing hockey, to make that their, their primary goal. But, uh, you know, read a book, you know, stay engaged with the world. I mean, that's, um, uh, you're going to have a better athlete. But the focus for them, is, you know, is still they get up in the, in the morning and they should be thinking about practice and what they're going to achieve. And, and a pra you know, the, the practices are the links uh, between games. So, you know, if they, if they don't have that, they're not going, all the rest of it is, is moot, actually. Okay, we're going to move on here. I want to thank our panel. Um, we'll take a group picture here. The next speaker up will be Christine Simpson from Sportsnet is interviewing Donald Fear, the executive director of the NHL Players Association. We've got a five-minute break now, and then we're going to go ten-minute break, and then we'll go right into it. Thank you, panel. Thank you.